0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to The Lunch Show with me, Samuel Lickis. Today, I'm excited to be speaking to Annalise Paris, known on social media as Petit Primary, about her work as a primary teacher and content creator, um, supporting teachers in their training journeys. We'll be discussing all things primary, getting top tips on how we can make our school experience as positive as possible.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the show.
1: I was at my sister's wedding yesterday, um, and it was a really great way to round off the half-term break. We had a really nice time, uh, but I've got to say it was very nearly a teachers' talk radio on-location show as I didn't really get back until just before we went on air. So I was sort of half ready to sort um, of get my laptop out in the in the car, just pull over in a layby and and do the show. But fortunately, didn't have to do that. So, but I think it'll be a really. I think I will take the rest of today nice and easy before I go back into school on Monday. So for those of you who have also been on half-term, what have you been up to? What are your top tips for getting the most out of your break? If you've broken up for half-term this week, what are your plans? Let us know using the hashtag TTRadio, or if you're using the Podbean app, you can type away here. So I'm really excited to welcome Annalise to the show today. Annalise, are you somebody who likes to do loads of planning during the holidays, or are your holidays sacrosanct of non-school things?
2: So I'm actually um, maybe kind of controversial, but I like trying to get as much ahead as possible during the holidays. I kind of think there are some things you can't plan for, you know, when you're doing assessments and you want to modify your lessons. But I think for the first week, if you can try and get ahead as much as you can, it allows you to ease into that new term um, (laughs) in a little bit more, um, less panicky way basically so i quite like doing it in the holidays actually
1: yeah but you got, you got sort of no other time pressures and stuff on do you so you can actually just sit down relax have a cuppa get on with some planning or some marking whatever you need to do you know i, I have done some work over the holidays um probably actually ought to have done a little bit more so it might be what i'd spend sunday doing is doing um get, get yeah trying to get as far ahead for the next term as i can or next half term as i can um so Really excited to have you on the show today. Um, one, one of the things I'm just absolutely amazed in in your work because you 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 are a teacher, primary school teacher, but you also um, have your um, petite primary YouTube channel, and you do lots of social media and content creation yeah. and all that sort of thing. How on earth do you manage to juggle
2: <laughs> all this together? Um, so I guess I have to say this wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. I think I've learnt a lot about um, having a better work life balance as time has gone on and of course there's kind of all those benefits of you know getting quicker at lesson planning and things like that when it just comes a bit more naturally so i think what i try to do is in the weekend i try and finish my lesson planning or do as much as i can for the week ahead and then i dedicate my evenings to petite primary Um, so it might be doing a well-being call after school because obviously all these people are working in schools as well so it's always kind of an Mm. evening thing um, and yeah, just really trying to to prioritize um, my well-being. and by juggling both, I think I am quite strict with myself, and I do try and manage my time efficiently and really think, is this the best way to do X,YZ? Um, do I need to do a whole extra worksheet as a challenge for a child? Not necessarily. And I think these are things that you learn along the journey as a mm-hmm. teacher, when you're training, when you're an ECT, you know it doesn't necessarily happen that way but with a few years under your belt you start to know where you can i don't want to say save time but where Mm. your time can be used more efficiently
1: yeah i think it's, it's what you say about being really disciplined with your time so that you can be efficient with it and i think that's that's something i definitely need to work on because if i give myself an hour to do something it'll take an hour it doesn't it doesn't seem to but i I, but i am capable of doing it in 10 minutes sometimes if it's if it's a sort of um if i just need to produce a simple resource yeah i can do it in 10 minutes but then if i give myself an hour then all of a sudden i just feel the need to meddle too much or sort of overwork or the perfectionist tendencies and that sort of thing tend to come out so yeah i think um i think that's really good advice just trying to be really disciplined with it and um and actually efficient so that when you've got your own time, um, when, you, when you're just relaxing, actually you are relaxing because you know that everything else has
2: has been done. Yeah. And you mentioned a, you, you said a really good point about being a perfectionist. I'm I'm definitely a perfectionist. I, you know, in the past, I've gone like a month without creating content because every time I make it, I'm like, it's not. my standard i don't like it so i'd rather put nothing out than put out things that i don't like and i think in the classroom when you're teaching you don't have all that time to be perfectionist with everything sometimes you do just need to like i said be disciplined with yourself and go right i've spent my allocated time let's say an hour on this thing i'm not going to do it anymore as long as the children make progress as long as i'm covering the objectives you know as long as i can fill the lesson and you know there is work Mm. to be done. and, And you know, they're going to learn something, I need to just accept that that's what it's going to be. Because otherwise, you can take four hours on a lesson making sure it's perfect. And actually, at the end of the day, it's for an hour project, I don't think you should spend longer than the actual duration of the lesson planning a lesson.
1: I think that was, that's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? <laughs> because I, yes, I definitely, definitely, I definitely have. I, I, I've gotten a lot faster, it has to be said, over over time with my planning, um, be, because I, I've now just got a sort of checklist that I go through. Have I done X, Y, Z? How uh, how, how I'm, just being really clear to myself how am i meeting the lesson objectives, and so I have I have been speeding up though, which has been good because um, it was taking me a bit ridiculous before many hours doing it and lining up PowerPoint um, every lining everything up neatly in PowerPoint and. Yeah, it, the kids don't care about that. So no, why
3: should... It, it
2: speeds yeah. up with time and it, it experience. So, you know, in two years, you'll be looking at this year and thinking, oh, I was so slow. I could have done that so much quicker. <laughs> like every year, it kind of it speeds up because it just becomes a more natural process. And the more you know your pupils, the more you see a lesson objective and think, right, I know exactly what I'm going to do for them. Or I know how I'm going to support them. And it just comes, yeah, a lot more naturally.
1: Hmm. So you, men- you mentioned earlier about uh, managing your well-being. So I realize this is an absolutely massive topic. But <laughs> how do you manage your well-being? What are your sort of top tips particularly for trainee teachers who might be quite overwhelmed at this time of year?
2: Yeah, so the advice I'd give to trainee teachers is probably different to ones I'd give you know teachers that are in their second or third year of teaching but for trainees i would really try and set about that rule of right i'm not going to spend longer on x because what happens is if they kind of struggle with something let's say there's an objective they don't know how to meet or oh my goodness i don't know where to start on this topic on i don't know let's say time then there's a tendency to just spend ages on it And actually, if you spend an hour on something or four hours on something, if you don't understand or you don't know where to start, four hours isn't going to make a difference. But suddenly you find your whole evening has been taken up or your weekend. And so my biggest advice on managing your well-being would be to make sure you speak out to people if you are finding something tricky. It could be if you're finding a science lesson difficult you go to the science lead in primary school or, you know, in secondary school, the head of your department. Mm. Um, it would be maybe going to your mentor and saying, you know, I'm aware of the components of like an effective lesson. I know I have to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm actually finding it difficult to adapt this knowledge to this specific learning objective. Could you please help me with this? And because of their expertise, because of their confidence in planning, etc., even just a few prompts from that mentor or that subject lead or mm. depending on how big your school is deputy head head teacher that can be the thing that could potentially save you hours um, and with that guidance it also kind of makes talking less taboo I think very often when you're under the pressure of oh very soon I've got an observation coming up all very soon, my percentage of teaching is going to increase. It's almost like you don't want to talk because you don't want to seem like you're not a good teacher, but that's Mm. not the case. It would be better to talk to somebody, get prompts with the planning or support with the planning and have a good observation, then be really quiet about it, struggle all evening, get stressed out about it, then get, you know, upset by feedback that you might receive and have a bad observation. I think very often we just need to think what's best. For the pupils, but also what's best for myself, because those two kind of come hand in hand. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I posted something recently and it was um it was a, a very traditional quote, and it's something like um, a teacher is a teacher because they are they're like a candle and they burn out for their pupils in order to light them or, or something along those lines. And I was like, I feel like we're coming away from that narrative of teachers need to burn out and constantly be doing things in order to care you can hmm. care when still managing for your own well-being because a burnt out teacher is not the best teacher they can be for those pupils and I think that's something that we really need to ingrain and in- install in people very early on from like training onwards so that they kind of go through their career thinking okay my pupils are important I need to make sure they make progress but also how am I going to make sure that I switch off by latest xpm tonight
1: um yeah no it's really good advice and I and i hit that that quote that you just mentioned it's it, it's tricky because it? um i think i think sometimes from what from what i've observed there are teachers who very much feel like that they it, it, there is quite a lot of presenteeism in teaching sometimes i feel like you know teachers stay really late after school um and, and doing so many different things but as it, you say it, it if that's if that's burning you out then you're not going to be an effective teacher and I think one of the things that sort of from my own experience is, is these things have a habit of snowballing don't they if you
3: 100%. if you
1: fail to speak out about anything that you're finding hard whether it's it's something to do with the subject material or um behavior or whatever it happens to be it, it compounds because it stresses you out it takes you longer to do things and perhaps then you actually start getting physically ill as well and yeah. th- then it just all sort of stables from there and so everything just ends up piling on and it feels like you can't escape that hole all of a sudden.
2: Yeah definitely definitely and, and it takes either somebody to intervene and be like are you okay can I help you in any way or it takes them to kind of hit a point where they just you know they can't keep going at that pace anymore and they have to reach out but at that point is normally when it's it's too late when mm. they're already burnt out. Um, so yes, yeah, snowball the snowball effect is is definitely a good way to to summarize that and that's something we want to to prevent.
1: yeah, and I think you you talking about uh, another teacher sort of speaking to you or noticing that something's not right and I think teachers tend to be pretty good at masking uh, what they're actually feeling like because when you're up there in front of a class you you are a sort of you you're in your teacher persona, your teacher character rather than what you might be like in in just normal life and uh, I've certainly seen a lot of teachers who always seem like everything sunshine and rainbows, but you know it's not actually. That's not the reality all the time, yeah. and and they're just it's quite good at masking it. And I I do think we do need to be more forthright and open about our experiences and what we're feeling like at any given time. And I'm really lucky at my school because there is a a mental health first aid team there, and wow. um, it's really not it was really nice to see. So all they they um, met up with all of us who are new starters this year we had a a, a conversation with uh, somebody from the first eighteen, and it was just, it was just a really nice thing to have at school and knowing that that is a resource that is accessible um for me and for other for other teachers and staff if 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 there's just something we need to get off our chest or something like that so i would I mean, be nice to have more schools have that sort of thing uh coming in maybe
2: i think they should yeah i don't know if it's because i don't know if you're Your school, um, you know, is is quite big, or if it's part of a trust or something. But I wonder if there's, if that came from the school's initiative to implement that because they saw the need for it, or whether, you know, it's something that hopefully more schools will will get into. I'm not sure.
1: Hmm. No, absolutely. I yeah. My my mine is it is a sizable school. It's quite a bit bigger than any school I've worked in before. Which which. There are some pros and cons to that, but certainly in terms of having extra sort of resources that you wouldn't necessarily find in a in a smaller school, that is definitely one of the pros. I think, and with all funding and all that sort of thing is like,
2: yeah.
1: So, one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you because I, I used to work as a teaching assistant in primary. Um, so I, I worked as a teaching assistant for a couple of years, um, mostly with Year Six, but I have worked all the way from EYFS to uh, Year Six, and. I found the amount that you have to do in primary quite overwhelming. You have to do a lot in secondary as well, but in terms of things like photocopying and um, and just having, because you've got your class there in the room with you all day, more or less, you haven't got time to be able to do anything in between lessons and that sort of thing. How, how do you, what's your approach to organising yourself for the day ahead in primary?
2: um so it's quite interesting i don't know if i've fully um settled on on a kind of routine i think very often it depends on my mood at the end of a day or you know how early i come in the morning but i know that there is a tendency for people either to stay after school and get ready for the whole day you know the next day um all people kind of come in early and they do it in the morning Um, you know that near kind of registration time or when the bell goes that there's going to be a mad rush for the photocopier so I would highly recommend not Mm. doing that um but yeah there's there's a real mixed bag I think um when I'm you know when I've had a really successful day and I'm happy and I'm still alert um this normally happens in like the first few weeks of a term Mm. um, but I might stay behind and get everything ready um I either put it it depends on like storage um storage options. But um, in my most recent classroom, um, there's kind of a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday tray. And I'll kind of put the resources in as and when I print them off. But sometimes if I didn't want to stay that late, I would just prepare for the next day, or even just until break. So I knew that I could spend break kind of doing the last month Mm. or printing. Um, So it is really good in terms of organisation to kind of get ahead. Just to avoid those kind of last minute panics, or if something comes up, you're not you're not kind of thinking, oh my goodness, now I need to photocopy because I've just spent my break time dealing with, you know, an incident in the playground. Yeah. Um, another organisational thing I don't hear much people talk about, uh, or many people talk about. Sorry, is um, kind of organisation in terms of your folders online like on your computer okay Um, yeah yeah because (laughs) you know otherwise you have Mm. documents all over the place and you just need to have like term subject or maybe by week but if it's just saved randomly or you download random things it's quite something when you go isn't
1: it it just says document one all over the place just um (laughs) notes you know what does that mean (laughs) yeah
2: yeah yeah absolutely or you download something let's say Um, You know, you were trying to get inspiration from, I don't know, something like Tess or Twinkle, and you don't save it or you don't adapt it. And then later on, like a week later, you're trying to find it again. It just takes, it's just useless time, isn't it? So just labeling things, putting them in folders, that really helps as well. And if you are sharing, let's say you're a two form school, three form school, then it allows your colleagues to, to also be able to access things with ease and it avoids anything like oh where did you save this and i think that all comes under organization as well um and then i guess the last thing if you would classify this as organization is prioritizing your tasks so linked to well-being obviously we have an endless to-do list which already mm. i don't really like calling it a to-do list i call it an achievement list um, oh,
1: it's, it's a positive spin on it i like that
2: yeah, yeah because then mm. instead of kind of you know saying oh I've got all of these things left to do you look at all the things you've crossed off and you and you go look at what I've achieved today and it makes you feel so much better
1: um yeah I'm gonna gonna, gonna try that next week yeah Yeah, I'll try that
2: um but I like to kind of organize things by and prioritize things by the Eisenhower matrix have you ever heard of it
1: yes I have um actually somebody on twitter pointed out the Eisenhower matrix to uh, to me because I and it was actually in response to uh, something. My my to do list, which had sort of massive tasks on it. Something like um, plan next week's lessons. You think well, that's that's just ridiculous because that's a massive. That's just too big or something like that. And and, it, and so being introduced to the um, sort of Eisenhower matrix. I'm just trying to remember exactly. It was it was breaking it down, isn't it into. Um, sort of more, more granular levels of um to-do lists?
3: I can't remember.
1: Yeah,
2: oh, so... you can know, made it better than me. <laughs> <Go>. oh, yeah, <laughs> so um, basically the Eisenhower um matrix is a way to classify your, well, your tasks into how urgent and important something is. And based on where you categorize these things depends on how you're going to react to it. So there are kind of four different boxes. One is urgent and important. Um, So these are things like there may be a consequence if you don't do it, paying your bills, paying your mortgage, um, if you've got a data deadline reports due, you know, you, you can't kind of leave that to whenever you want, you can't procrastinate on that. And so those are the things that you have to do now, whether it's, you know, this evening or in two days time, it's, that's the most urgent thing. And then you've got kind of not urgent but important. So these are the things that you know may come up, let's say it's January, and you know that in June reports are going to come up, you might give yourself a little task to kind of ease that burden nearing June. So that's something that you need to decide to do, but you can schedule it in. You might say, okay, in a month's time, I'm going to look back on the progress or, you know, write a little summary of what we've done so far ready for in June. Um, Then you've got urgent and not important, which is you know realistically it's not always possible but where you can try and delegate things Mm. if you have a teaching assistant try and delegate a task to them um you know if you have got to I don't know make a shopping list for for the week ahead maybe if they are you know ready to do that and they have the the mental capacity as well because Mm. of like their their work um maybe you could ask your partner or you know get inspiration from a ready-made shopping list meal prep thing from Google. Um, and then there's finally not urgent and not important. And sadly, these are the things that often have our heart. These are the things that um, we want to do because we like it, we enjoy it. But if you are stressed and overwhelmed and you're trying to organize your time um, or prioritize, these are the things you can delete. Maybe leave it till till next week when you redo your list. Um, but by categorizing it, it kind of goes, okay, if you don't know where to start, Start on the urgent and important, delete this stuff so your list is already smaller. And then, you know, it, it kind of eases that burden.
1: Oh, so that's, that's brilliant. And actually just trying to think, because for me, I, I do find prioritisation something I'm not very good at. Because in my head, everything's a priority. So it's just yeah. everything always comes to the top of the list. But actually, it does that, you know, the Eisenhower matrix does give you a way of actually just being a bit more objective with those tasks. Um, yeah, does it have a deadline? Therefore, it needs to be done before the deadline. That's absolutely, you're going to be your priority because it does feel like that in teaching because you've got so many things to do and you've got lists that, it's basically never ever going to be completed because you're going to add more things to it as, as you remember exactly. and,
2: and that's um, why people keep working so late because they're like oh, i need to get to the bottom of it i'm like yeah but you're not going to because <laughs> then you're going to get to you know a point that you're okay with but then you're going to add something because you either thought of a provision that could support a pupil or maybe you remember that you would promise a friend to do this or it would it, it's always going to extend so i guess you know focusing on the urgent and important already kind of just gives you a, a a deadline and a kind of, this is what I have to do. The rest can can wait, basically.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Annalise. We're just gonna take a quick break now while we hear from our sponsors and the news.
4: Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co Forward slash Tate, inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today, and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more.
5: This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the universities and colleges admission service, known as UCAS. The students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive Sander Crystal described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas which is up by only 2%. However the total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. A drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan transparency on RSHE materials and that this is key but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13, and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit. In addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador, Hamza Yassin, will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean, or keep them warm, the BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom receive free uniform trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families describe themselves as living in non secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in b and accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, the Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution, including physical ill health, mental illness school absence, and poor behaviour. Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as one in 10 school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021 to 22. Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face in recruitment and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the DfE have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
1: Welcome back to the show. We've just been talking, uh, Annalise and I, about organisation and how we can just keep our well-being maximised during our time. Uh, particularly as trainee teachers, it, it is a, it is a really overwhelming and it can be a really overwhelming experience. And I think I think just the advice I've been getting from Annalise has just been really really nice to hear. And even just little things like changing your to-do list into an achievement list just to give it that positive spin and just to help you. Um, like you're always achieving something throughout the day because actually we are achieving lots as teachers constantly but it doesn't always feel like it because our our minds are already focused ahead somewhere in the future but the next thing that we've got to do rather than actually just taking stock of where we've been so far or or what we what we've achieved to this at this point so Annalise, the next question i want to ask you and this is something that i have a great deal of respect for primary teachers for and that is you've got to teach all the subjects and I know from having worked as a teaching assistant um I I came in when I first started working as a TA quite confident thinking yeah it's primary school I can I can do all the maths and English for that no problem and then suddenly I'm looking at the work that the students are doing and it suddenly occurs to me that I haven't actually studied this sort of thing myself in 10 years, 15 years, even longer sometimes. And and it's just all completely leaked out of my brain. So you've, you've just got to know so much. And how, how, do, how would you recommend primary teachers go about actually just improving their subject knowledge? Because when you've got so many subjects to improve your knowledge on.
2: Yeah, so I think the ones that you really have to focus on are obviously the core subjects. Um, so things like English and maths, I think you really need to be on the ball with. Um, And I think that's why some trainee teachers in, in particular, if they, let's say, you know, they have a preference toward key stage one, and then suddenly their contrasting placement is in year six, naturally, you know, they kind of panic and they think, Oh, my goodness, you know, do I have enough subject knowledge for this? Or I can't remember what an expanded noun phrase is, you know, all those kind of like phrases that you recognize, and you're like, Oh, my goodness, I just can't. You know define it those things um what you need to focus on if you're trying to improve your subject knowledge so there are different ways of going about this sometimes it's you know looking down and kind of doing an audit if you don't already have to do one for your training provider mm-hmm. going through the national curriculum and just thinking right i know what this is i could explain it cool great so move on to the next one and i think the the bullet points that you would need to focus on are the ones that maybe you recognize and you can physically do yourself, I don't know, let's say column edition, you can do column edition, but you might not be confident in explaining, then I would recommend going to a website that is child friendly and seeing how they explain it. Because it's not just knowing about how to to do something, how to do a process or a method. It's about knowing how to explain it to a child, especially a child that might find it kind of tricky. Um, And the other thing I would, look at is obviously the ones that you may not be able to explain or you don't recognize or you know you're not actually sure what that means full stop those are the two categories of things that you need to really audit yourself on and in advance try and do some research you know it might be um, that you buy a workbook that is designed for let's say year six children doing SATs. Um, you know, fill that out yourself. Do some mock SATs papers. See if there are things that actually you don't know how to answer and then revise those. Because you don't have to, you know, for primary um, maths, you don't need to have done A-level, you know, further maths Not in yet. order to teach it. But you do need to have an understanding of the struggles that some children might have an understanding. You do need to understand how you would kind of break down a process such as, I don't know, exchanging um, and how you would explain that to a child. The other thing, of course, in English as well is you have all those like technical terms, um, you know, you've got like subordinating clauses, which, you know, if, if if you wait in like 30 years time and you ask yourself, oh, what's a subordinating clause? And you haven't been in the classroom for 30 years, you would definitely have forgotten. Mm. Um, so career changes or you know, trainee teachers that maybe haven't done English since GCSE, go and just recap those things. Like I said, there's great workbooks, or even just, you know, Google it, BBC Bite Size, all of those kind of websites are really, really supportive. Um and then for foundational subjects, which is obviously the ones that we often find tricky, um, you know, whether it's um RE or PSHE or geography. I mean I didn't even do geography GCSE personally. Um, and, oh. you know, I'm, yeah, exactly. Um, oh yeah. Sorry. You're a geography teacher. Aren't you? Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, it's, no offense. Um, it's I landed myself great. in that all the subjects I could have chosen. Um, but, you know, so sometimes I, I have to recap things myself, but the thing that I would say that hopefully will be of a, of, you know, a reassurance to a lot of people is as long as you are at least one step ahead of the pupils, that is okay if you're let's say you know teaching them uh you know kind of a a little topic on on maps you don't need to know everything in order to teach them the first lesson understand the first lesson be able to explain the first lesson and then you know make sure you're familiar with the second lesson before you teach them that and actually that's probably one of the the ways that We still learn so much as a teacher because, you know, if a school goes into, you know, buys into a scheme and that scheme says, okay, lesson number five is going to do this, and you don't know that in advance, you've learned something as well. So it really, you know, it does have the benefit of keeping us on our toes. And, Sometimes learning on the same time as a as a pupil or doing a science experiment for the first time, and you're just fingers crossing that while you're modelling, it's going to go right and mm. it works. Sometimes you're as you know pleasantly surprised and excited as the children, and I think that's one of the joys in in keeping that love of learning alive. It can feel daunting, but change your mindset around it into a positive thing about wow, I'm going to actually learn something. Or I'm going to recap this since I have not in five ten years it it's exciting
1: yeah Um, i really found that being yeah i really found that myself actually it's being being um there were just lots of topics going back into working in a primary school that i haven't sort of studied myself you know since i was at primary school and and it, it was really i really enjoyed it i actually just really enjoyed being able to i remember one one project we did at the school was um they did a whole uh, project on the incas and i'd never studied the incas before and i thought i'm actually enjoying this probably even more than the students are in a way (laughs) because it was really good but i think um something you mentioned about career changes you know you may have even more distance from their own schooling because i've had another career that that was sort of my experience as well because before i went back into teaching back into education i worked as an editor at a publishing house and so i was very used to editing books and that sort of thing and so I was quite confident in my English skills. And then suddenly I've got all these grammatical terms and things. I, I, I do sort of know what this is or have I forgotten? And, because the, the, SATs, the SATs curriculum is, is quite technical. I think people would be really surprised at how technical it is if yeah. they've not um, done it for a while. So, yeah, actually understanding something and being able to teach it different skills. And it's, it's almost recommended like record rating, didn't you? Going through different topics thinking, yes, I, I know what this is but I wouldn't be confident teaching it yet. So maybe that's that's the thing I need to work on for my next lesson. And, you know, no point recapping stuff that you can do easy peasy. And that, that's it. you're confident with. It gets prioritisation, isn't it? So. Yeah,
2: absolutely. But, you know, like you said, as an editor, I'm sure you would have used or, you know, seen in, in your work loads of fronted adverbials and things like that. But if it suddenly comes to seeing that as a bullet point and you're like, oh, is, the, is fronted adverbial the one... Oh, gosh, you know, and suddenly you doubt yourself because, you know, when it's your first language, for example, if we're talking about English, um, you know, we just use it naturally. We don't think about, you know, even in year one, kind of a simple sentence versus a complex sentence. You know, the only difference is adding a conjunction. But if, you Mm. you know, if you haven't heard that for ages, you think, oh, gosh, I don't. What makes a complex sentence? It's yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's a good point to, to raise because, for a lot of people, that's, you know, one of their first kind of scared moments, isn't it? Where they go to their contrasting statement. And even if it's a uh, placement, sorry, if it's somebody that's confident in key stage two, but then they come down key to key stage one, they might think, oh my goodness, I don't know. How do I teach phonics? I don't know what, how do I, mm. what's this sound? <laughs> you know, um, I remember coming across split diagraphs for the first time. I went from year four to year one, and obviously, I hadn't done phonics since I was in Key Stage 1, and I just didn't know how to how to pronounce those split digraphs. Um, so yeah, it, it's humbling because you think, oh, I'm a grown-up, I know everything, they're, they're you know, 10, 11, whatever age you're teaching. But yeah, you, you do have to be on your toes. And, and proactively trying to, to enhance your subject knowledge is always recommended, I think, in whatever stage of your career you're in.
1: Absolutely. I- do you remember, when I was working in, um, I worked with uh, Key Stage 1 classes as well, and I wish I'd taken notes on how the teachers were teaching phonics, because it's not something I've ever, I, I that was doing at the time, and I think I'm, ne- I'm probably never going to use this again, but, but actually it is useful to know, even at secondary level, because we have more and more students who are non-native English speakers in our classrooms, and actually being able to being able to break things down into the phonics is really useful there. So I say I wish I'd taken notes when I was doing that to learn how yeah. to do phonics teaching properly.
2: But even, you know, when, when you become a parent and you want to, you know, support your children whether in re- in reception or if you want to home educate, knowing how to pronounce those sounds and knowing what order to teach, you know, you don't teach the name of the letters, you teach the sounds of the letters first. All of those kind of things, you know, if you have that knowledge already, um, it's hugely beneficial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know. I've got. I've got a young nephew. and He's just turned two, oh. and my, my sister's been starting. He, he's he's quite. He's getting quite chatty now, but my sister's been introducing him to uh, phonics and that sort of thing. And and it's it's really interesting though, just seeing how she does it because she's really good at it. Um, and it's for me, I'm thinking actually, how do we pronounce this <laughs> this this um this this phoneme? um because we're not used to hearing them in isolation we it, we're used to hearing them in contexts of words and oh, it's, it's just it, i it's just phonics is just magic to me I, I absolutely love it and i wish i knew more about how to teach it um maybe i should have done primary teaching <laughs> yeah. uh, so um it's, it's really interesting if you think about improving your subject knowledge because i think in, in primary it is not necessarily the same level of depth as you might have in secondary, but the sheer amount of breadth—it it, it is a joy to learn about it yourself. And I think, as again, it's—it's it's having that positive spin that you always put on things. I really, really like. It's thinking actually, I, I get to learn all this myself, even though I've not learned it. I, I, you know, I last did this when I was in primary school, but now I get to go and have a look at it again. It's—it's it's really nice to see that, and uh, your your sort of positive mindset. And it's now I think that will come across in your teaching if you're if you're if you're being positive with yourself. Actually, that's going to come across in, your, in the classroom and how you're sort of demeanour with the students. And, and they're going to sort of, hopefully, sort of magpie that a little bit and just think, yes, I can have that growth by myself and, um, and succeed. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask is in secondary, a lot of secondary teachers or trainee teachers now will be thinking about doing a primary placement this in the coming half term. they might be just doing one day some I know some programs do a full week in primary so what would your advice be for a secondary teacher going into primary school for their placement what what should they be looking out for um how should they be getting the most out of that placement
2: oh that's a tricky one especially you know for those people that are there for just a day um I think what I would maybe propose, obviously, you know, look at how the, the teacher presents the content, things like that, because the tone, you know, and, and the the general, it almost is a performance is, is probably different to, to secondary. Um, but I would also look at the support that's put in place for children that might be working below age-related expectations, because, you know, I, I don't want to generalize, but this these are things that I've heard in the past, um, is that... You know a child goes up to secondary and maybe they're not academically capable and it's kind of like well you know what did what did the primary school do you know they they just kind of let them do whatever and actually we're working so 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 hard to support those children um in the cohort that just left um there was a child in year six that still wasn't confident with writing their name but you know every Mm. single lesson we're still having to to support them and create something that you know we can't just make them practice their name in, in lines every single lesson for all day, you know, we're still trying to get them to, to learn. Yeah. And there's so much things that happen, there are so many things that happen in the background. Um, in terms of the provision, how we adapt for those pupils. Um, because yeah, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what it is like in secondary, I went to, um, I went to a grammar school. So obviously, all of us had to pass the test just to get in. So I never really even saw support in the secondary system in my school. You know, I, there were no pupils that were maybe under um, age-related expectations. So I I really don't have much context apart from just things I've seen on social media, but just for them to go into primary school and see what we're doing. So in year three, um, so seven to eight-year-olds, I had um, some pupils that were still on EYFS, so reception, um, hmm. writing their name, for example, their name was written backwards. Um, handwriting was, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, but they're still expected to progress and it's how we support them. Um, my partner is a a very educated man, very clever, but he was like, I don't know how you teach primary because in my head, they should just get this math thing. Like, I don't know how you, you help them. (laughs) It's, (laughs) It's so easy. How do you teach them this? Um, and I think that's maybe something that would be beneficial for people to see, you know, um or for, for them and their subject, come down to a primary level, see what they see what they're learning about, see what skills they have been taught and how you can build on that. Um, I know that's not a very specific answer, but I, I I think it's difficult to to give a specific look at this full stop because it's, it's a whole picture, isn't it? It's understanding mm. everything that goes um you know into into the planning process into supporting every aspect of their development because when they come up in year sevens they look tiny compared to your six formers um but you know for us in primary school the year sixes, you know look so grown up um yes <laughs> you know compared to the yeah. little four-year-olds in reception um but there was so much that went into their you know social and um social kind of development into their emotional intelligence into their academic development into them as, as a personality you know there, there's so much that goes into it and I hope that when secondary trainees go into primary school they can appreciate that and even take away some things that they might go do you know what this reminded me of ex-pupil this is what they must have been like in year five I, I might try this next time or maybe try a more nurturing approach um, you know if they see a, a teacher you know resolving a a behavior incident in a certain way and it relates or it resonates to something they've experienced in the past but obviously you know in secondary school you have that kind of hormonal thing as well going on um but maybe just thinking I might give this a go because I think we need to work as a team education isn't just primary you know, and then move that away, secondary, move that away, college, university, it, it is a whole picture. And I think the more united people are in their understanding of the whole system, um, you know, the more consistent we can be in our approaches, and hopefully, the you know, the more effective we can be for their, their development and their pupil progress.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's it, um, it, there's a tendency to think of, yes, yeah, primary, secondary, Sick form, all being in different silos, and often not a whole lot of interaction between them. Even sort of with feeder schools, uh, and the, and the secondary feeder primary schools going into secondary. I, I, t- some you do hear sometimes in secondary staff rooms, people that sort of say, "Oh, this student doesn't know how to write their name, or the handwriting's so bad. What are they be doing in primary?" And and I know, having sort of being a TA, that the teachers and the and the teaching assistants in primary are working so hard for these students, and and and. And um, and actually, you don't necessarily realise the progress that they have made to get to where they are now. Um, and and even if they're sort of, it, 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 I think sometimes in secondary, these these things can become a lot more visible because students have loads of lessons. The children are sort of moving around the school, lots of different lessons, and 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 so it might be perhaps that as as some of their peers start to sort of accelerate ahead even further in secondary going through their secondary careers and others it's almost get left behind i think sometimes that's the relationship aspect isn't it because in, in primary you've got one main teacher usually in the classroom and who knows the who knows their class just really 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 well all the individual strategies that work with different students which we don't have in secondary to the same extent because we just don't see the children as often yeah. Um, and I think that's something we really miss in secondary. And there's, not, there's no solution to that because it's just how it is. But particularly with students who do struggle and do find it hard, we're not going to know them as well to be able to help them as, as effectively as probably you can in primary.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a little question is, um, do you in secondary have a kind of... Uh, Transition meeting, you know, if let's say you're you're you've taught them for year seven, eight, and nine, and then they're going to another teacher, do you kind of sit down and and talk about the pupils and say things that you've done, or is it kind of the teachers' turn to learn that at their own pace if they change class?
1: That's a good question. In we we've always had um, meetings about particular students who, for whatever reason. Um, Need need that extra attention, but maybe it's behavioural, maybe it's um, a pastoral aspect, or maybe it's their um, a a learning a learning issue. So we do have those meetings. We have sort of briefings in the in um, with both our uh, form tutor teams and as a whole school staff body. At least in my school, but in terms of teachers, sort of specific um, being able to sort of specifically say in geography, this is what I've been doing with this student and it really works really well for them. So maybe when they go into your class next year, you know, you could try this. Uh, that That's not something I've experienced, but actually it's a good idea thinking, I'll pitch that maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's, it's a good idea to think actually because we don't necessarily know what our timetables are going to be like until quite quite close to the end of the year. And chances are we're not going to be able to take on the same classes every single time. So you yeah. are going to be, you do feel bad about it sometimes, thinking, oh, "I don't get to teach this class anymore. Somebody else has to," and especially if it's one you really like. But you should like all your classes. <laughs> so anyway, um, so um, in what I'm, what I want to move on to now is looking at um, how trainees in primary can be uh, should be interacting with their mentors. <coughs> so excuse me. We know that our. The mentors are really, really busy people. and They've got an awful lot on their plate. And, and so those mentor meetings that we have are, are sort of, it's a really important time that we've got that's blocked out just to have a chat with our mentor and cover things. What advice would you give to get the absolute most out of those mentor meetings?
2: So my biggest tip to make sure that, again, it's like time efficient, you know the mentor's busy, you know that you probably have things to do when you get home as well is to have an idea of what you're going to say before you end the mentor meeting. Now, being a reflective practitioner is obviously key to improving your, your practice, um, you know, helping pupils make as much progress as possible, making sure your lessons are, you know, as good as they can possibly be. Um, so I would make sure that when you're going into a mentor meeting, let's say it's um, the meeting where you set new targets for the week, um, let's say, you need to have an idea of what things you could bring to the table so that a you avoid any awkward silences and b it shows there's that kind of maturity that proactiveness and that initiative taking that the mentor needs to see if it comes down to the mentor being like okay so you know what do you think went well in the lesson what do you think didn't go well Oh, okay, um, so I would think maybe, you know, think about your behavior management. Is that something that, how do you think that went? You know, straight away, it's kind of the 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 power has shifted and you need to be in charge of your own development to some extent. It's a bit like the the audits we were mentioning earlier, kind of your subject knowledge. You need to kind of say, okay, I'm going to Look up this term in English because I'm not sure what it is. When you go to a mentor meeting, it's good to say, right, I'm going to ask my teacher um, or my mentor, sorry, um, what they thought of my behavior management because I think it could have been, you know, much better. But I wasn't sure how to manage that behavior incident that happened. So I'm going to go in and and maybe ask them about that. And if they agree, then maybe we could do a behavior management target. If they think that was actually, um, you know, reacted to very well, then, you know, it would be interesting to see what they think. But if you go in just ready to listen and they have to do all the talking and you just nod your head, you know it's not um, the initiative that that you require as a teacher. You Mm. need to have some ideas ready to talk about. Um, Even if, and obviously you want to try and think positive as much as you can, but even if they are all negative, at least you know where you can work on. If you have no idea what to change, no idea what to improve, no opinions on your lesson, that's when I think mentors may start worrying, um, because even as as teachers that have worked three, four, maybe a decade, you have those lessons where you go, yeah, that that didn't go, you know, that didn't go to plan, or um, that was too easy. I'm really pleasantly surprised. Next time we're going to have to, you know, push up a notch because they finished too early. Whatever the the reaction mm. it is, yeah. you need to have some kind of reflection in place. And I think when you do that you know it doesn't end up being kind of the mentor having all the power you know that kind of oh i've got the word in french but i don't have the word in english that kind of drives the, <laughs> the, the 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 meeting you know you want it to be a kind of conversation where you're two professionals that are coming together reflecting on a situation trying to make the best out of that meeting um because there have been times where we've you know i remember with my um trainee teacher she um uh, when I was a training teacher and my mentor, my mentor was SLT. She was the lead of several things. It was a one-form school, so all the planning was obviously on her, and then I was taking some of the planning as well. She was also a governor, and there was just so much happening. And, you know, there was one meeting where it was a really tough day, and we both just kind of sat there, took deep breaths, and then went, oh, my goodness. And, you know, we I think we sat in silence for about five minutes. <laughs> but you don't want to do that. You know, that was just us kind of decompressing and acknowledging you know how tricky that day was but you don't want to always sit in silence or wait for one to, to come to you because if they've got lots on their plate you know of course they want to help you but they don't want that additional um mental you know workload to be added on top and um, that is for you to think about so oh,
1: that's a really good way of putting yeah. it actually think about it yeah mental workload that you're putting on the mentor and it, it's taking ownership of your own learning isn't it and it ultimately
2: absolutely that's
1: what we want our students to do that we want them to be the, the owners of their own learning and actually we've got to do the same yeah what 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 do how do i feel things have gone what advice do i want to seek this week what questions have i got yeah coming prepared is. <laughs> The, it, it, it's, um, it's. I find, I find the mentor meetings I have really, really valuable. They're really um, valuable time because, because it is just that time that is blocked out, and so it's not just a conversation in the corridor when both of you are on the way to somewhere, and you think, oh yeah, I've got to ask this really quickly, but it's not going to be a proper conversation because you're both rushed. It, so it is, it is, it is really valuable time, and so I, I am trying to sort of myself come prepared. These are the questions that I got for today. And and I'm, I'm actually thinking about what do I want my targets to be
3: because yeah. I did find yeah, um,
1: yeah I was, so my situation's a bit odd because I I started my PGCE this time last year back in last September so I've done a term already and and I know I know back when I back last term when, oh, sorry last year when I was doing my PGCE I sort of turned up to the mental meetings not really having a clue what my targets were going to be and and so you end up getting some really Weird targets sometimes because your mentor, like you say, the mental pressure, mental toll that you're putting on them, or the mental workload, has hasn't really thinking. Oh gosh, we got to come up with the target. It, then it just becomes a a thing that you quickly just scribble down at the end of the thing. So you get targets that aren't really necessarily very helpful. And so I have been trying to do that a lot more this year, thinking actually this lesson didn't go so bad. There were really bad behaviour issues. That's good. that that that. We can't have a repeat of that i want to work on that i want to get it really good so that we have really productive lessons with that class and and i've, I've been finding that's been working really well so far
2: yeah i mean it, it's nice to hear it kind of um put into practice as well that that you're doing that and and it makes more sense doesn't it because if if you're trying to build your confidence and you and you're new to teaching lessons or, you know, new to planning, and then suddenly you're horrified by this bombshell of a target that you had no clue you did not see coming, it, it really knocks you down. And you know, you're in that kind of vulnerable stage where you need lots of pick-me-ups and lots of confident boosts. So if you try and like prepare yourself and be like, right, well, I'm gonna come to the table and maybe say I need some kind of target related to this area or this teacher standard. it it, you know it's hugely beneficial and it saves time and it's just a win-win so that would be my my top tip really
1: great thank you very much yeah no really good um we're just going to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors
4: are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term we've got you covered the day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons we're offering listeners a free resource on andrew tate that you can find on thedaynews.co Forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more.
5: This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit JohnCatBookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
1: Welcome back to the show. Um, Annalise, I just want something just pro- prompted from our sponsors today thinking about andrew tate and other complicated and um I- I- issues that are facing teachers up and down the country at all age groups you, in primary it's do you know, i I, th- I think i think when i started working as a ta in primary i came in with, with quite the fair level of ignorance thinking oh they're just so little they're very sweet and innocent they they don't they're not looking at all this stuff but i quickly found particularly in year 6 that that they were they have a lot of them have their own phones. The debates we had about that, but you know they're, they're accessing all kinds of things. So, so I haven't, I haven't, I didn't ask you about this earlier. But what, what are your thoughts on how we deal um, as teachers with tricky or complicated or controversial issues in the primary setting?
2: So I feel like this could kind of be um, ironic, but the biggest tool that we can help our students to understand, you know, how influencers like Andrew Tate, um, you know, aren't very healthy opinions Mm. um, is by educating them. You know, don't dodge the subject. Don't be, well, you shouldn't be on TikTok because you're not 13 yet. Because at the end of the day, some of them are um, some of them have accounts that they might share with parents, etc. They do have exposure to it, like you said, even in year six, year five, I know there, there were some of my year threes that had TikTok accounts. And if you tell them off, or if you cut the subject off, or or just say, kind of dismiss them, like you shouldn't be watching people like that, um, you need to tell them why and you need to educate them in a way that they can understand at their level of development. So you know, in when they're like seven and eight years old, and they might accidentally come across these things, we need to talk about it and, you know, actually say, well, you know, nowadays, women and men, they can do whatever job they want, they can um, have different roles. Some men like to cook, some women don't like to cook, you know, you need to kind of Mm. educate them and guide them into seeing what is kind of morally right, morally wrong, Um, because, you know, things like, oh, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, Um, but kind of educating them about, let's say diversity and inclusion. You know, there are more and more amazing books that are coming out um, that represent different people of different colors, different, um, you know, maybe they've got different like physical disabilities. Um, You know, there are so many more books that actually represent more and more people. It's not just the standard I don't know um picture of you know a nice happy family with a dad and a mum and a daughter for example you know now you've got um books that highlight you know the joys of um single sex families and um and oh you know adoption things like that all of these topics that were normally quite difficult to talk about we have more and more resources coming out that can help you educate children from a young age you know if uh if a, a boy wants to dress up in reception in a in a princess dress and somebody says you can't do that you're a boy we don't just say oh that's not kind that's not kind words you know then you start to educate it might mean that you know in a future lesson actually you read a book on purpose because you've seen that you know scene in in your classroom you realize there's an need. you get a book out and you actually go well let's talk about this afterwards you know Do you agree with what this person said? Why not, you know, or why do you agree? And you start to kind of, in an age appropriate manner, you start to open up the discussion and you start to educate because the worst thing you can do is ignore something or um, kind of dodge past it or tell them off because ultimately, you know, for example, that um, Andrew Tate, he is so famous. He has so many followers, you know, TikTok and and things at the time, those platforms, they were just promoting it. So even if you weren't following him, they might he might just come up on their their feed anyway. And so you know we need to kind of be prepared for those discussions. And I think there definitely have been difficult discussions that teachers have had to had had, <laughs> had yeah. have had to have. <laughs> I think that's the way. Um, but you know even now um, there's there's kind of news that we're going to have to start sharing um, sex education resources with parents so that they're okay um, with them and that they can give their approval. But ultimately, they can also withdraw their children from it. And you'd hope that they would go home and, and the parents would maybe have the conversation. But that's not always the case. So we have to take our roles as educators very seriously. We need to be that role model, because we don't know what kind of modeling they're getting at home or what explanations or discussions they're having um and so it it comes down to us to try and undo what they may have seen or um have that serious conversation with them you know if a child repeats something that they've heard at home or on the tv we need to educate them as to why that might be wrong um so yeah i think using resources such as books and maybe video clips if um you know there's some kind of like misogyny or something that that happens then you need to conquer kind of gender stereotypes things like that so um yeah it's a really important role and the best way to combat it is just educating talking and using those resources more and more of them that are coming out
1: that's a really good answer i love that you bookended your answer there with just got to educate them that's the job at the end of the day isn't it um it's it is it is difficult and I, i think you know you mentioned about the way we educate them has got to be age appropriate, and I think that 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 is absolutely true. And I think that's the thing I find hardest about some of these these topics is that you you frequently have a very big spread in maturity levels, and I think often that's that's even more visible in primary school than than in secondary, um, where where and I remember again the year six class that I used to TA for, you've got some. children but they're they're children who have been exposed to an awful lot in their lives already and they 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 they've got a lot more life experience worldliness and that sort of thing than others who may have had quite closeted lives up to that point and so that that maturity spread and experience spread it, it can be substantial and so trying to know how to communicate these topics when you know that some of them can handle these issues but some of them can't that's a really delicate balancing act in the classroom so I was just wondering what your what your thoughts were on that and how we we manage um when 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 you've got such a spread of maturity levels or um differing levels of sensitivities as well in, in how we discuss these these challenging subjects what your thoughts are on that
2: So, I mean, my my response would probably be the same. Um, And although there might be differing um, maturity levels, you want everyone to have the same exposure to that discussion. Um, Because very often, even if a child may, you know, not be the best at maths or writing, very often they still do have that same understanding in terms of the vocabulary. And if there are vocabulary, uh, like, you know, within your discussion that they don't understand, such as maybe stereotypes or things like that, then you kind of explain it to them. Um, but you're right in the sense that, you know, there are some children that have been exposed to so much in their personal lives. And I think people don't necessarily realize how much children pick up. You know, when a child accidentally swears, sometimes as a teacher, you kind of have to hold in your your laughter if it was like an accidental blurt, and you just think, mm. them, they don't know what that means. Um, but, you know, sometimes children are using that as their their way of showing aggression, you know, they start swearing because that's what they've seen either on shows or at home, you know, when one of their parents might be angry, they start swearing, well, that's what the child does. Very often it's kind of seen as they're young, so they don't know what's going on or they're not picking up on things. But it it's when they're taken out of that context, for example, in the classroom, that actually you see the impact that things can have. Um, you know, things like divorce or other um, adverse childhood experiences, things we call aces, they can have a very big influence on on a child's understanding. And actually, it may not be through media influences, such as um, Andrew Tate, that they come up with opinions, it might be based on their home experiences. Hmm. But In that case, we need to, like I said before, try and not necessarily undo, but, but give them an alternative perspective, that they can be like, actually, Maybe I shouldn't talk to this person like this, or maybe my mum, my dad was wrong when they spoke about this. Um, you know, even in terms of um, in terms of international conflicts, things like that. You know, if if a child um, might be from the origin of a country that is currently in war, that child might be, you know, suddenly be bullied, or they might be like, my mum says that, you know, da 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 da, or my dad says, and actually straight away you have to address that as a teacher you can't ignore that um and sometimes watching things like bbc news round can be really beneficial because you know it's at an age appropriate level you can pause it you can explain any words they don't know um you could kind of ask questions like how would you feel if if, you know if this happened to you um and you know you kind of get them to empathize and to understand on a deeper level than just the factual This is what's happening. Full stop. Um, And trying to address any of those issues that they they might come across um, is really is really really important. And I think the emotional maturity. You know, let's say if a child is particularly sensitive, you might want to tell them beforehand. Okay, so just so you know, we're going to have a discussion in a really nice soft tone, get down to the level. You might just want to say, we're going to have a discussion about something. If you feel upset at any point, you can go and see Miss or Mr. da da da, um, or, you know, because I trust you, um, I have put a chair outside if you need to leave the room for a few minutes, um, something like that, you know, or here's a fidget toy if you get a bit anxious. All of those things, they kind of are part of the adaptive teaching isn't it it's knowing the needs of the child and that's how we need to to kind of go about it very sensitively um but but still approach it no matter what age i really am a deep believer in actually addressing these kind of things because you know they might not be getting this they might not being sorry they may not being like taught this elsewhere so we need to we need to do that for them
1: absolutely that's a really good answer and i think you know, something you'd be you mentioned is that well you very clearly sort of emphasise actually we do need we do need to teach you we do need to address these things and and not shy away from them because i think one of the things i found working in in, in primary is a lot of the children would access materials whether it's it's films or TV shows or um, music all sorts of things that that's not age appropriate for them it, it's it might, it might be sort of rated or 15 or above or something like that. And and so they they're watching these sorts of shows and, and, and they start modeling the behaviour. And and mm-hmm. it's uh, modeling the behavior but without necessarily under having the maturity or the knowledge of, of what the context is for why that behaviour is occurring in that particular show or something like that. Um and, and so that that and, and, and that and that and all these sort of social cues are very difficult to understand and um, and it's it is stuff we that we learn over time by being taught, and and I, it is a really tricky balance I think. And but what you said is really really important in addressing things. And I remember one one issue that we had, and this was um, just after the COVID lockdown, when we had students of of um, East Asian heritage. There was a there was a spate of bullying in my school with this because really awful where children of east asian heritage were sort of you know they're getting accused of being spreading diseases and all that sort of thing so that they're actively being avoided avoiding them and 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 from my perspective i, I felt like this wasn't really addressed that they were being told no you can't do that because it's wrong without really addressing why it's it's wrong or what what, what the stereotypes that are being reinforced there are and 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 actually, what, how we need to discuss these things properly—it's it's, it's important to be able to discuss things like like COVID and the response to it. And it's—and um, and I think children deserve to because they were affected by it and and learning about it. But actually, yeah, without the stereotypes and things like that that have being reinforced sometimes with how you see um, these these issues being tackled in schools. Yeah, sorry, that's me just rambling a little bit there because it's it is it is a really tricky topic, but I think a really important one um, that all teachers need to develop their skills in in knowing how to do these things.
2: Hundred percent, yeah.
1: So, so we towards the end of our show now. So, I think one of the sort of final topics I wanted to ask you about is in um, a lot of trainings, I have preference for particular key stages that they want to work in and it's true at secondary as well you get some teachers they only really want to teach the sick formers and just want to ignore key stage three and and in primary I think it's even more so because the the, the amounts of the the amount of development that children go through in primary is is enormous and it's it's amazing isn't it just how quickly that they learn uh, from yeah. reception level and up to year six and um so some trainees have a particular preference for working in reception or the younger, key stage one. Others will be firmly, I only really want to do key stage two. But in in your primary teach training, what my understanding is you work with both, don't you? Is that right? Yeah,
2: you get so, experience
1: working in key stage one and two?
2: Yeah. So there are there are courses that allow you to kind of choose um, a younger age range. Um, so some people might be focused more between like three and five years old. Um, but the majority of um, of courses, um, unless they specify otherwise, would be for the entire um, primary setting, yeah.
1: So what what advice would you give trainees who are perhaps really apprehensive about going into a different key stage? Because you, you mentioned yourself earlier when you went into year one, you weren't as confident teaching things like phonics uh, because it's not something that you've done a whole lot of. Um, and, and I imagine a lot of trainees would be feeling very similar to that. So I. I just don't know how to deal with perception because they're just too little at that point or that sort of thing and, and and vice versa so what advice would you give them to actually get the most out of that time working in different key stages
2: so aside from subject knowledge which we've already kind of addressed um I would also kind of just sit down with yourself and kind of have a reflection of what am I most nervous about um and if it's kind of away from subject knowledge let's say it's behavior management or knowing how to speak to them. You know, if you've kind of had that, that slightly bantery tone with year six and suddenly you're coming to year one where they're really dependent on you and you almost become a bit like a second or third parent, you know, it it can be quite difficult. You're like, well, I don't know how to to talk to them. You know, "What, what kind of words do I use? Do I need to use really small, simple words? I don't know. So I would kind of reflect on what you are most nervous about and make this the the kind of um, emphasis of your observations. So when you observe a teacher, um, because normally you kind of have a, a little period of kind of observing before you teach, I would make that the focus of your observations. So let's say it's behavior management. Okay, so you've come from year six, you've gone to year one, big contrast. What does the teacher do to support the, you know, the behavior management of the class to make sure that they're all sat down to make sure that they know of you know, how to sit on the carpet versus how they sit on on the table. So I would basically, you know, observe purely that just focus on that. Um, If a child starts shouting out, how does the teacher address it? Um, You know, what kind of um, nonverbal cues is the teacher giving, you know, whether it's kind of like a a silence and you just, they just kind of freeze and they wait for, for quiet, or do they kind of you know, with, um, with their hand kind of do the sign for for sitting down? What do they use? And I think in observing this, you kind of accidentally start to form um, some strategies in your head so that once you're stood there, if you know that a child is shouting out, you have an idea of how to react. Because very often when we observe, we want to just make note of everything. And then suddenly when you want to refer back to those notes, you need to read the whole set of notes to find You know, one strategy that you wanted or one bullet point that you in particular were looking for. Um, So, having a focus on observations is really, really important, I think, in order to kind of navigate those thoughts of, I'm not sure how to do this, or I wouldn't know how to react in a certain setting. Um, Especially when you're kind of, let's say, year one, year two, and then there are children that are working below that that level. Um, so let's say your two child doing soon, but actually is more reception. Again, that's, that's, you know, really important to note. And it, it might be that actually, you're not sure how to how to adapt to those to those needs. So that is what you would look for in that observation. It could be, you know, you ask for a copy of the planning, and you look at how they've adapted to those needs. And you look at, you know, how they deploy the TA to support those needs. So identifying what you're most nervous about and then prioritizing that when you're observing those teachers and maybe in those mentor meetings prioritizing that as a topic of conversation you know I'm really looking forward to planning my first lesson I'm confident with my plan we've gone through it but I'm just a bit anxious about the behavior management side what if a child does this what if a child has you know a toilet accident in the middle of the class how do I deal with that and I haven't got a TA I can't take them or can I take them but then I'm leaving the class you know please could you explain this to me because I'm I'm slightly apprehensive about it and I think that if anything's going to be my downfall in this lesson it might be this so I'd really like to get your insight on it so I guess in conclusion my tip would be reflect on what you're most nervous about and make this a priority when you are looking at their planning or observing their lesson and also highlight this in your mental meeting because it's all about you know, speaking out and don't make it a taboo. Like, oh, I don't want to mention this because I'm not sure how they'll view me. Just go ahead and, and say it, and that's how you grow. You know, as as a teacher.
1: Yeah, I get the sense, you, you're you're very sort of pro reflective teaching. <laughs> I get that really strong strong sense from you about that, which is really really good to hear because I think because what the way the way you express the way you go about reflective teaching is. It's just really constructive and positive, and it's always designed to help move on. And I think one of the things I personally have a tendency to do is I do reflect on things, but but it's a it's a negative kind of reflection because I'm dwelling on things that went wrong over and over and over again, I'm replaying things and and you think and before before long that really starts to bring you down. Rather yeah. than rather than no that this didn't go so well, but now I need to do X, Y, and Z to address it, and use that time in our mental meetings as well to talk about that now yeah so i think you're know, having that going into lessons obs- when you're observing a teacher with a really sort of clear focus on what you want to get out of it is, is really good advice and i think there's always going to be things that you can always really good transferable skills as well even if um the way you manage behavior in reception is going to be different to in year six but there's still going to be techniques that you can apply or adapt in in, in whatever stage of education that you're working in
2: yeah, definitely. And and sometimes it's just about that same technique that you're making it more age appropriate. You know, if you're doing a kind of um, call and response thing to get their attention instead of, you know, um, three, two, one, eyes on me, something like that. In year six, you might do something a bit funnier. Um, I think what was the one that I used to do? um I did um who lives in a pineapple under the sea and they had to shout <laughs> spongebob square pants at me Love um it. Yeah. or like scooby-dooby-doo and they have to say where are you you know when when they hear the same thing from reception they get a bit bored but that kind of makes them chuckle it's an excuse for them to kind of shout and then they know to be quiet you know all those things you can you can definitely adapt in year six you know they might not be as into stickers but that's fine you kind of try and find another way to get them motivated, which actually I mentioned stickers, but I think right now, you know, in in behavior, we're trying to avoid stickers. We're trying to avoid those extrinsic rewards and try and promote more intrinsic motivation, you know, wanting to learn, wanting for themselves to do better and not just for the sticker. Um, But I know a lot of schools still use those kind of things. So I guess that's why it, it came to mind.
1: I tell you a lot, in, even in secondary, a lot of them pretend they don't like things like stickers, but they do. And They get really <laughs> excited sometimes. They get them. No, I remember um, one of the thing's I, I, I found in, in primaries. The um, is, is doing a clapping pattern, and then the uh, kids have to sort of copy the ca- clapping pattern yeah, back. That's when fantastic. he wants I still, I, I actually, I actually do use that sometimes, even in secondary, particularly with Key Stage three. But I've got to save my voice sometimes if a particularly loud activity is going on. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to talk over that <laughs> so I'm just going to clap and, and it's funny because they are used to it uh, they, they do they do remember it from primary and they just think oh he's, he's still doing that in secondary but it works <laughs> so I think why not uh, they quite enjoy it as well even if they pretend they don't maybe I don't know um, <laughs> we're just going to hear from our sponsors a final time
4: are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term we've got you covered The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more.
5: Visit JohnCatBookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
1: Welcome back. So just in the last few minutes of the show now, um, something Annalise you've mentioned a few times today is is about making use of things like your teaching assistants, um, which typically, is is it fair to say that pretty much all primary classrooms will have at least one TA?
2: Um, oh, I, I think, you know, when when we were children, I think probably yes. But I think now it's not as common. There are very often times where you share a TA between a year group, or um, sometimes you don't have a TA at all. Um, or there might be a time where the TA becomes a one to one. So actually, they're kind of allocated a, a child that has specific needs. And then um, you know you don't necessarily have that use of the TA for the rest of the students so I definitely think you you will have exposure to to having a TA at some point but I, I don't think it's as common as it used to be but I, I might be wrong there
1: okay yeah no, I think it's, okay, it's 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 tricky isn't it you say particularly if you've got a TA who's is really a one-to-one for a particular student if they've got an EHCP or something like that actually they need to be the one-on-one you can't be using them as a, as a classroom TA yeah I think um I think something I find I find a bit odd, having been a teaching assistant myself, and I'm quite used to the teacher just being able to say, uh, could you do X, Y, and Z, or, or um, anything, sure. But now being a teacher, and I've got, it's less common in, in secondary, but there will be classes that do have uh, teaching assistants. What? How, how do you go about managing a TA? Because I, I'm finding that it, for me, it just feels a bit strange telling another adult what to go and do. I don't, I'm not quite used to it. It's one thing with children, but not so much adults.
2: yeah, it's it can be it can be awkward, especially you know, if it's a teaching assistant that has been in the school for years, um and you know they kind of they have a a daughter the same age as you, for example. you know, it mm. can be awkward to to tell them what to do. But I think the way to to combat this feeling is having a good relationship with them because then it just feels like you're asking a friend to help you out with something if you kind of take on that mentality of right I'm I'm the boss um, then you know it, it does make the the feeling in the classroom very very different um you know when when I had a, a ta um, I kind of made sure that the relationship was definitely there and you know I, I I spoke with them I debriefed before and afterwards I let them know what was happening because one thing that happened to me in my um each training and I actually had a target for that was that I would try and tell them what was happening beforehand they would finish and then midway through the lesson when you've got all those children naturally coming to you for help or um, you know they're they're kind of saying oh I'm finished the teaching assistant was also you know trying to get my attention to ask what to do um, which you want to avoid because obviously mid lesson there's lots going on um So yeah, just making sure that they're aware of what the lesson is going to look like or what you want the end of the lesson to have achieved is really helpful for them because then they can kind of take that initiative and be like, right, I can see that, you know, I've helped this table, but this table is kind of, you know, struggling a little bit. I can see that, you know, Annalise is over there. I'm gonna go to this table. And you kind of give them that Autonomy in in almost feeling like they're equal to you. Because again, if you take on that boss thing, then it's like, oh, I don't want to do this in case that's not what they want. But you you don't want to 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 have that atmosphere. You want them to feel like they can go to a table and they know that they're going to be supportive. And then also express your, you know, your your thankfulness, your gratefulness um, for that, for that teaching assistant and what they've done, because they do they do have so much that they do as well um, to support those children. And very often, although I wouldn't recommend this, um, very often they um support the children that are lower ability. And that can be tricky, you know. Um they haven't had the training that that we have had um in university or in skits. And so to always put them in that position, it can be draining, it can be difficult. Um and so another tip I would give is always make sure that you change face. So this means that, let's say, the teacher might go with the chanchen of learnability, and then the TA can float and live mark. You know, that's absolutely fine for, for a TA to do as long as they're aware of the marking policy and, and they do that mm-hmm. in accordance with what the school expects. Um, but allow them to have a little bit of a variety as well. So sometimes it could be floating, live marking. Other times it could be oh, would you mind sitting down with X child because I know that in English lessons, maybe they struggle with the input a little bit more or, oh, they broke their fidget toy earlier today. So, you know, they might be, um, uh, you know, a little bit upset today. Those kind of things, um, behavior management, supporting children of all abilities um, is really, really useful. And just having that relationship to make sure that they feel confident in what they're doing. They don't feel any... Um, I don't know what the word would be, and um, they don't feel any reluctancy or you know harsh feelings at you telling them what to do because it's almost like you know your friends. Um, mm. I think those are really really important things. And if in any doubt, you don't know what to ask the the TA to do, then just think in the future what what could they do. I know stereotypically people think oh you know they're just photocopying and cussing all day. Um, but now there are some schools that say TAs aren't allowed to do this at all so if you are in a position that you can do this and everything's under control or they're listening and they're all behaving nicely then maybe see if the TA can do something like that or could it be could you select a few books from the library for our discussion later or um, you know if you do have um, iPads or laptops in your school could you quickly find um like three websites that this child could do for their brain break those kind of things it can change all the time but as children you know we don't like it children don't like it don't make their day-to-day lives really monotonous you know you you want them to have variety you want them to try different things um because again everyone likes learning. So, you know, for them to, to be able to, to learn what the needs of this child is or for them to try a different intervention out because we're trying to improve the handwriting of why child. Um, oh, interventions generally is, is great as well. So there are loads of different ways, but just think about what would be best for pupil progress. And if pupil progress is fine, they're all on task, et cetera, what could help me out? You know, thinking back to the Eisenhower matrix, that part of delegating, what could I maybe ask my TA to support me with? Oh,
1: really good advice. Thank you so much. I really like what you said about, particularly about um, cha- changing changing of faces, like actually not just giving the TA always with the low ability group. And actually, I think sometimes it can become almost a little bit enabling sometimes, if that's the case, if the TA is always doing that. And it's just, it's almost like magnetic, the task happens and then straight away with that group, but actually just having, mixing it up a little bit, it's really good advice. And. Actually, giving everybody exposure to all the students um, yeah. in the classroom, Annalise, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. I really appreciate you giving up some of your Saturday to uh, talk to me. I've just just so much that you've spoken about that I've learned an awful lot from, uh, particularly about the way you emphasise um, reflective practi- uh pre- like being a really good skilled reflective practitioner. is really great to hear. So, thank you so much for coming on the show today
2: oh thank you it's been a pleasure thank you for having me
1: we're going to finish off now so thank you everybody for listening um enjoy the rest of your weekend
2: and you see you later
0: see you later you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio